You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello and welcome to a social justice podcast. I'm Nicholas Sperling, your host. Today I'm joined by Benjamin Perry and Joe Richards for a conversation on healthcare. Ben, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, my name's Benjamin Perry. Um, I'm a speech therapist of about 15 years. Um, I've mostly worked in um, a child development center, which is a sort of a uh, like a community health setting, um, interfacing with families and of children with disabilities. I'm also active with a healthcare union, uh, advocating for healthcare workers and uh, our healthcare system. And Joe, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, yes, I am a, a nurse uh, with Providence Healthcare. Uh, I've been a nurse for three years. Um, and I work primarily with, um, it's a high acuity medicine, um, at the hospital that I work at. Great. Well, thank you both for joining me today. I'm looking forward to this discussion. My first question is healthcare. Normally we define the topics before we get into them, but I don't think healthcare needs defining. So I think what we want to do here is it's a very broad topic and, we're probably going to end up sticking to discussing healthcare as it relates to Canada specifically, Mm -hmm. because I think that's what we're all probably the most knowledgeable about. And if possible, we'll touch on maybe what other countries do by contrast throughout this conversation. Mm -hmm. But when you think about healthcare, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Um, What's the first thing I think of uh, with healthcare would be wellness, uh, illness and wellness, but uh, the goal to be wellness. Um, whether it be physically or mentally or emotionally. So just kind of all around well-being. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think when I'm thinking about healthcare, I think usually I'm everything's going really well. You know, I have my occasional, for me, health, like minor aches and pains. But like when I actually need health care, it's like a really vulnerable situation for me. And um, I need someone there that's going to be able to take care of me and not do any harm to me too hopefully having people in healthcare that you can trust to, to do what's right for you. Yeah. And it, and you know, almost all the time there's great people in our healthcare system that have helped me so much. And I've been fortunate to have good, mostly good experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I know as a trans person that that is extremely important. I've been with someone who, when we went to the hospital, one of the nurses was just incredibly transphobic and, you know, that doesn't make you want to be in, in a hospital. It doesn't want to make you seek the care that you need. Um, and I think it's very important that you have healthcare professionals that you can trust. Um, so I try to make our conversations about each topic fairly general, but because we all live in British Columbia, I want to talk about some of the issues that relate to British Columbia specifically. So we have things like shortage of doctors, lack of dental coverage. Um, What are some other issues that you can think of and how could you see them potentially being resolved? Um, I definitely would say that, and this is actually a Canada-wide crisis, but the mental health crisis, Mm -hmm. uh, specifically how it um, is being shown uh, in the downtown east side, just that um, there's many comments in the media about how every year that number rises. Uh, one of those reasons being that Vancouver is one of the most temperate places in Canada. So if you are uh, living outside or you're finding that you have no fixed address or that you're finding uh, it hard to find housing, 
that Vancouver is the mildest. Right. Um, down on the downtown east side, there's actually a lot of resources. Um, but I think that in BC, um, we're seeing that sort of rise in like a mental health crisis in the fentanyl uh, overdoses and also just in what we're seeing in the hospitals and in people trying to access resources. Well, just thinking about the healthcare system, mm -hmm. um, critical mm -hmm. shortages in every healthcare profession, nursing, mm -hmm. um, the, all the health sciences, um, respiratory therapists, mm -hmm. I think is a big one. Um, family doctors, general practitioners. Um, and then when you talk about the, the poison drug crisis, there's shortages in every aspect of that, the treatment for that, the solutions for that. And, um, I've, I know this from talking to people in the, in this industry, there's that, that support, the mental health support that come the longer term, you know, two, three year support to help stabilize someone who's, um, a drug user or addicted to drugs or having a mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. That's, that's lacking the long term, longer term stuff. Yeah, that's actually one that uh, I wanted to touch on as well, the toxic drug supply. It seems like the government's willing to treat it as a legal issue and provide funding for approaching it from a legal framework, uh, but it doesn't seem like there's that same desire to treat it from a healthcare standpoint. Mm -hmm. do, you, do either of you have some insights into why that might be? I think that it might be sort of an old school mentality. I'm going to kind of go off on a limb here, but it's like that example that you tell your parents, like I'm a millennial. I tell my parents that I'm in therapy and they think what happened to you. <laughs> but then I tell someone who's also a millennial that I'm in therapy and they go, Oh, I'm in therapy too. Right. And, it's sort, <laughs> and it's sort of this generational thing where exploring mental health is sort of taboo. Uh, for certain generations. And so when it comes to who designs our healthcare system, it's still sort of the older generations. It's moving more into millennial uh, and Gen X, but it's still sort of structured around this idea that mental health is taboo and that if there's something wrong with you, we can fix it with a pill. Right. And that's really it. And there isn't really discussion in hospital as much about other ways of coping and there's not very much discussion about exercise and food and living space and environment and things like that just as a base and then going into um, I know that you want to talk about mental health uh, later but going into um, like counseling and different ways of coping yeah absolutely yeah, I mean in mental health like often the issues are in young adulthood people are dealing with issues of identity and you know, um, leaving that sort of being a child, having an institution, having a school, having parents, and um, so many supports could be helpful at that time for that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost as though by pushing pills on people as opposed to therapy, you're contributing to that toxic drug supply. You're making people reliant on drugs as opposed to other other forms of treatment. And mm -hmm. if they can't access the you know, the healthy drugs through yeah. a hospital, then they're resorting to um, illicit drugs, drugs that might be poisoned uh, for dealing with those mental health issues. And then we wind up in this never-ending spiral. Yeah. An issue that we actually have is that um, when people de develop chronic pain um, and other reasons for wanting to use drugs that alleviate pain, 
the hospitals can't match the amount that they can access on the street. Mm-hmm. So I've seen um, people from all walks of life result or go to the downtown east side or wherever to get these very strong doses of drugs because they're in so much pain and the hospitals can't meet that for them. Right. They can't prescribe uh, that level of pain coverage for them. And so they have no choice. Right. So it wasn't, this isn't sort of a, a historic problem, mm-hmm. for instance, with uh, oxycodone being prescribed. Um, it can also be that, but yeah. It, well, definitely it could also be that, but mm-hmm. that's not, that's not necessarily the only issue at play. So mm-hmm. there's all sorts of different angles that we have to approach this from when it comes yeah. to how to address the toxic drug supply from a healthcare standpoint. And, yeah. and when you say like there's an interaction between say emotional pain, mm-hmm. psychological pain and physical pain, they yeah. all, they all de- add to the same pain bucket. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. People use uh, lots of things to self-soothe. You would think when so many people are dying from these illicit drugs and when mm-hmm. the root issue is often healthcare needs, mm-hmm. whether it's pain, whether it's, I mean, I suppose mental health is also pain, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it, it seems counterintuitive to force people into getting it on the streets when you could instead provide a safe supply of mm-hmm. those drugs. So why do you think there's such a pushback against providing safe supply to, to those individuals? Um, I've talked, I've heard a few people who are opposed to it. And um, I think that there's a thinking that a safe supply will increase the use of illegal drugs. Well, there's no short supply of drugs. There is a, there's, there's nonstop supply. So I think that's wrong. The idea of safe supply is that it won't kill people. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if we wanted a big bag of drugs right now, I bet we could go and find it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder too if that whole say no to drugs campaign had something to do with it as well, where there was almost this mentality that, well, if you want to not do drugs, just don't do drugs. Yeah. It was very idealistic, but it's the same. It's like a a sibling to the abstinence campaigns that we experienced at our high school that we both went to, Mm -hmm. where that was their their line. They said, you know what, the best way to prevent all these things is just not to do it. And it's like, you're not really teaching young people both sides. Mm-hmm. It's not really giving us insight to what life could be like. Kids are going to experiment. Kids are going to have sex. You can't really say, don't do it. And, we're, and kids are going to be like, okay, because you said so. Yeah. And I'm glad to see that that's shifted because yeah. um, you mentioned our school, but yeah. I think there was a shift between um, when you graduated, when I did. Oh, really? I I had sex ed that did not teach that. Um, oh, it was very yeah interesting. What's, what's the years difference between us? I was two thousand five. I was two thousand eight. It's only a three That's year only difference. Three difference, yeah. Yeah, but I think I came to the school in two thousand five, so maybe it was just sort yeah. of being phased out at that point. But I also feel like they taught uh, sex ed in the earlier years. This was grade eight, grade nine. Mm-hmm. They don't bother with the twelfth graders. Yeah, I'm pretty set in our ways. I think ours yeah. was in grade 10 or grade 11. Okay. Maybe they shifted it. I just remember the wooden penis coming out. That, <laughs> And we didn't have that. It was in gym class just being told, just don't do it. Was, was this in public school? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Absence huh. was taught, yeah. Well, I So I was I, – I'm, I'm older. I graduated 
from high school in 94. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only 11 years. Okay. It, yeah. But it seems yeah. like a long time. Yeah. Um, sex ed was in, I had a great sex ed in seventh grade for my seventh yeah. grade teacher. Uh, abstinence was not prominent. It was mm-hmm. probably mentioned as one of the options. So I don't know what happened yeah. in those 11 it, years where they suddenly got onto <laughs> I think it depends on jurisdiction as well. Like um, in grade five, which would have been long before you probably received that abstinence education in mm-hmm. in high school, I had sex ed in, in elementary school yeah. where it was quite progressive from what I recall, minus the queer aspects. Yeah. <laughs> Those also were not touched on. No. But I feel like in elementary school, it was very um, biological. It was just teaching us what was going to happen mm-hmm. and not that – it was something that we that we might want to do, especially in the fifth grade. You think, ew. I'm yeah, not gonna- I don't remember that there was ever. You know, this is something that you're going to do. Yeah. There was definitely the ew factor, but there definitely was not a abstain from this uh, message that was being pushed to us either. Yeah, mm-hmm. that might be lost on a bunch of eleven year olds, maybe. It but also, be. the town that we're from was very Baptist, so yes. and I think that a lot of the teachers had their own agenda and they did push their own um, ideals because I had a teacher make a comment about um, queer people, primarily lesbians. And this was before I realized my own identity. I was sort of just floating, but I had grown up with two uncles who were gay and who had actually died uh, during the AIDS um, epidemic. So I felt strongly about what she was saying and we had a slight argument in class, but it was never brought to a principal. It was never, it was never, she was never brought to justice in my opinion. Right. But she had this strong opinion. Interesting. About uh, a band teacher that worked at our high school. I took that band class. Yes. And <laughs> I remember exactly that who I'm talking about. I know exactly. Yeah. Who you're ta- and she yeah. was very much gay. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 So it was uh, an interesting Yeah, people just had, they just expressed how they felt. I think that happens a lot everywhere. You know, you want to remain politically correct, but you have an opportunity to talk to young minds about what you believe in, you might take that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I go and speak in schools because um, what I needed when I was a kid was inclusive sex education, social education. We're getting a little bit off topic here, but that was... Um, something I really needed. So it's that mentality of be the change you want to see in the world. So, okay, I'll go talk in schools and be the trans person that kind of tells other people this pathway exists as an option for you. Well, if you want to bring it back to healthcare, when I was in nursing school, we took a course, it was one day course, and it was on the whole rainbow. It was about everything. It was one two hour class on gay, lesbian, queer, intersex, trans, two-spirited, asexual, everything, mm-hmm. bisexual, yeah. um, pan, all the um, I've even alphabet. I've here, students. Yeah, yeah, and I had my instructor stand up and ask me, or ask the class, do you know what non-binary is? And I explained it, and she asked me to teach the class. Amazing. Yo, not amazing. Oh. She should have been equipped. Oh, you mean because she didn't know? She should have been equipped to teach that class. Oh. I shouldn't, because I'm not non-binary. I thought it was a question, like no. she knew the answer. but Yeah, she, no, she, I mean, maybe she did, but the way that I explained it to her, she felt confident that I could teach the rest of the class. Interesting. So I stood up and I, was, I went through the slides and I explained things to the best of my knowledge, but I explained that 
you know, I have one lived experience and I, you know, am like cisgendered. I identify as gay or lesbian or queer. Um, my prog- progression, <laughs> progression through, um, through my young life was challenging, but I grew up in Vancouver, which was quite liberal. And I was sort of at the end of when it was sort of a problem. And I kind of grew into this time now where it's a little bit easier for the L and the G and the Q in high schools. Mm-hmm. I can't speak on the other experiences. Um, I think it's easier across the board, but yeah. it's a little but further yeah, behind. For yeah, some but yeah you know yeah. what I mean? And um, and I was put in, in this position and there was no plan to teach all these people in, in my course. They're all adults um, about trans people, mm-hmm. about anyone that, that it wasn't obvious. And they wanted me to teach this lesson. And I kind of said something. I was like, there's going to be trans people. There's going to be non-binary. There's going to be people with preferred names. There's going to be intersex. There's going to be lots of different people. And it's not a requirement in this program to learn about those people. And if you have your program in Vancouver, there's a very good chance that you're going to encounter these people. I encounter them all the time at the hospital that I work at. Mm-hmm. And I felt it came to you know social justice that Canadian schools, specifically to BC, BC's nursing schools and other schools should be teaching things accurately. Mm-hmm. in order and i actually think that it's as important that you should be failed out of a nursing school if you can't grasp those concepts as much as you can't grasp the medical aspect because mm-hmm. you could graduate a student and they could not grasp those concepts at all and then they feed that into the healthcare system i've seen it where people have been misgendered people we've had um, a few trans women who have not had bottom surgery have chosen not to, and they have been treated very differently because of that. There's actually a hearing happening right now with a, a nurse who has been taken to the BC Human Rights Tribunal, I believe it is, because um, she was unwilling to correctly gender patients mm-hmm. and basically felt that she had the right as a nurse to um, state her opinion however yeah. she wanted even though in doing that, it was negatively impacting her patients. So uh, I don't know what the result of that's going to look like. Mm -hmm. It's um, definitely an interesting conversation. And that idea of educating healthcare workers on social justice issues is exactly why I've taught healthcare Mm -hmm. students in the past, because instructors have said, well, I'm not knowledgeable on this topic, so let's bring a trans person in and talk to them about queer issues and make sure that they understand that. And I think mm-hmm. that that's um, as much as you would want the teachers to be educated on it themselves, mm-hmm. recognizing those limitations and going, I don't know everything I should know to give the students the best education they have. So let me bring in an expert mm-hmm. so that they can get the education that they really need. Mm-hmm. My, my, uh, my union and my health mm-hmm. union provides that service to our, our uh, sites. Okay. So um, that there's a, uh, an employee of the union who's a lawyer yeah, and oh. is a, as an, an LGBTQ to a plus two S plus identity mm-hmm. and did the education for, we invited all the staff as a local union leader, I was trying to get everyone to come. We knew the people that didn't want to come and they didn't mm-hmm. come. <laughs> and uh, it was an hour with 
with a whiteboard and lots yeah. of letters and lines mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff. It was really cool. Yeah. So have you had uh, had that experience of having to learn about various different identities or, um, I guess, intersections between healthcare and social justice issues within your work? Um, well, f- for clients, it's it has come up very rarely. I work with children mostly mm-hmm. and families. So we have had some, um, I think, either gay or lesbian parent couples. Mm-hmm. And um, from a union perspective, it it's also about just sort of having to stand up for human rights, mm-hmm. um, misgendering, and things like that as well mm-hmm. a few times. But and, um, I think because it's with kids, it's most often cisgender parents and children who are of unknown mm-hmm. gender and sexuality. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's usually younger kids that do speech therapy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it takes a lot of people a while to figure out if they're gay or trans yeah. or whatever it might be. So that would make sense that you haven't had to sort of encounter that quite as much. Mm-hmm. Um, shifting directions pretty radically at this point, I'm going to ask a very simple, possibly question. Mm-hmm. Is universal tax-funded healthcare better than privatized healthcare? So I um, think that there's benefits to both. Um, I do think that the government ta- uh, government funded uh, healthcare is more there's more equality in that. Um, but I watched my grandpa when he was ill uh, go to a Canadian doctor and be told there was nothing wrong with him. He was just falling over because there was fewer doctors in Canada. They were overworked. He went down to the states where I walked into this hospital. It looked like it was a set from Grey's Anatomy, and I finally understood that that's actually what hospitals look like in the States. And he was able to just through his benefits, he worked for United, be able to access healthcare right away. Right. So in that being able to access that did save his life, but not everyone has access to that level of healthcare mm-hmm. where I always make the joke that if breaking bad was set in Canada, it would have been two episodes long because then he just would have started chemo the next day. And that would have been it because in Canada that healthcare would have been covered. Right. In the states, he didn't have that healthcare. To my, I've never actually watched the show, but I know the premise. That, but, yeah, though, that's yeah. that's pretty accurate. I just yeah. watched it again recently, and and yeah. that's true. The whole premise of it, I, and I mean, I think there was a desire to to become sort of somebody. I think there was an ego aspect, mm-hmm. and perhaps that needed to have been satisfied, regardless. Yeah, but um, yeah, definitely there would not have been the same storyline because yeah. you don't need to pull together hundreds of thousands of dollars for your treatment in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I wonder too, if um, the issues around our public healthcare system are related to the fact that it's a public healthcare system uh, or the fact that we're not funding it well enough, or um, there's not good enough coverage or something along those lines. Um, so when you look at private versus public, I would compare two systems working properly, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, right? Like, um, you could look at public health care in some countries of Europe mm-hmm. and go, okay, well, that actually looks like a really good model that I yeah. would uh, see helping everyone, possibly. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're not funding it properly, you don't have enough nurses or um, enough doctors to take care of the people who are coming in and trying to access health care, then yeah, of course, they're going to go to the US because... Mm-hmm. 
they need to to survive at that yeah. point. Yeah, well, I mean, chronically underfunding and leading to overuse of overtime, mm-hmm. um, lack of prevention. So if a, if a patient goes and they're having symptoms and they're told, oh, it's nothing serious, just go away because the doctor's thinking about all the other patients they have to see and they're not mm-hmm. going to investigate a little further could turn into a much more serious health problem later mm-hmm. on. I wonder how much more, how much we could save by properly funding and staffing yeah. our healthcare system. Yeah. I mean, I've had a doctor for two years. Uh, my family doctor switched in the middle of COVID. So I have a new doctor who I've never even seen in person. I've had plenty of issues come up and we've had, you know, five minute chats on the phone and, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know how useful that is necessarily. Right. Like, um, is five minutes on the phone with the doctor where you're trying to adequately describe whatever it is that you're dealing with going to be enough for them to say, oh, yeah, you actually need X, Y, Z treatment, right? Yeah. Um, and what impact do you think the pharmaceutical industry has on healthcare? Is that I? So when it comes to social justice issues, I often take issue with um, making huge profits on anything that should be a basic necessity of life. Mm -hmm. So we've, in our housing podcast, talked about landlords price gouging, for instance, Mm -hmm. right? And that, that's not something that I agree with, even as a landlord myself, because Mm -hmm. there shouldn't be that, those massive profits off of people just trying to get something that they need Mm -hmm. to live. Um, So that would apply to food, but it would also Mm -hmm. apply to, Healthcare, mm-hmm. right? So, if you are privatizing healthcare and providing it at such a high price because you're trying to rake in as ma- as many profits as possible, mm-hmm. I have an issue with that. Um, and the pharmaceutical industry is pretty well known for doing things like that, or at least certain mm-hmm. companies um, jacking up the price of medication that people need because there's that whole supply and demand aspect of business, right? Mm -hmm. If you jack up the price, but that person needs it to save their life, well, they're going to pay it regardless because they don't have another option. So Mm -hmm. what impact do you think that has on the overall healthcare system? Um, This may be a little bit of a tangent, but like, I know that we've had this huge debate with anti-vaxxers. They don't like taking vaccines. the for-profit motive of pharmaceutical companies and the times where they've exaggerated the value of their medicines or the necessity of their medicines, that's feeding into people's distrust of medicines and with good reason. Cause like, do I really need that medicine? I'm always thinking that. Right. And I think that's where anti-vaxxers are coming from. And, and, and that's, I think, it, it's it's fair. I can't. I n- I never get so mad at anti-vaxxers, even though I'm I'm in favor of vaccination. I think it probably saved a whole bunch of lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand where they're coming from. You think it's that distrust of of big pharma that's causing people to not want to get vaccinated? Yeah, and I I mean, if you look at um, people in healthcare, maybe require different professions to have certain amount of professional development, keep their skills up mm-hmm. to date. Um, those are often funded by pharmaceutical companies to mm-hmm. teach the healthcare professionals about their particular medicines. Mm-hmm. And so the, that's how I think that there's a little bit of, it'd be, if, if we could have our whole, everything be not for profit, if the pharmaceutical industry could be not for profit, we'd have a whole different story mm-hmm. in healthcare. 
we might be using way less medicine and we might have other fantastic medicines that were delivered at a low cost mm-hmm. um, rather than sometimes the higher cost thing, which is a marginal better outcome or something, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to say because um, most medications, once you start taking one, there's a side effect that you eventually will have to take a medication for. Right. Um my uh, prescriptions and everything have always been covered um, through um, myself being indigenous. Mm-hmm. So I've never known the cost of certain medications. They're just, I just go, I never even knew about this MSP thing that everyone was paying in BC because I was told, oh, Canada has free healthcare. And because my healthcare, my MSP was covered, mm-hmm. um, I never knew. And then someone mentioned that it's all this money and I was blown away, but um, I don't know how much certain medications cost, but what I do know is that uh, when I was in nursing school, I was having, I was very anxious. Um, you know, my finances were low. It was a tough time. Nursing school is terrible. Any nurse will tell you that. It's an awful time. And I went to the doctor and they prescribed me with an SSRI, uh, which was citalopram. And when you take that, there's side effects to it. And for a lot of people, there's quite a bit of weight gain, which then can add to other health problems. And there was no discussion, like going back to the whole like pushing of things versus the mental health aspect. There was no offering to me of other ways that I could combat my anxiety. Um, and you find that a lot with other things too. They'll just give you a pill for your heart. They'll give you a pill for certain things. And I wonder how much is just doctors being told themselves this is this is what being a doctor is or if it's them pushing i think in the states certain doctors and this is me speaking on uh i'm just assuming here certain doctors have contracts or something with certain medications and i think that they do push certain medications over others i've heard that i think john oliver might have done a story on that yeah Mm -hmm. i don't know if that's in canada just because of the universal health care I'm not sure either. I, I went to a um, psychiatrist in university too because mm-hmm. I was having anxiety. Yeah. Um, and the the it was it was at on campus and he said he said you know I'm a I can't remember the name of the drug you know let's say it's lorazepam or something yeah. I'm a lorazepam ma'am I I think everybody's got anxiety and because of this particular issue and everybody needs lorazepam so I give yeah. it to everybody. Yeah. It was almost any he, he was dressed like a used car salesman. Yeah. It looked like he was really yeah. just selling something. And he was I think he was almost being ironic, kind of yeah. telling me this is this is the best you can do with a psychiatrist. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well lorazepam is great. And if there was doctors <laughs> like that now, people would be going to those doctors because from to my knowledge, it's very hard to get lorazepam. Huh. Uh, it's very addicting because it works. It really works. I take it for flights. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah, I had a, a weird incident with um, a psychiatrist because I was trying to find someone to help me with my mental health issues. I couldn't afford to pay for someone out of pocket. So I was mm-hmm. trying to access th- someone through MSP and I got turned on to the psychiatrist. Turns out he has horrible reviews, which I mean, I didn't even bother looking at the time because mm-hmm. it was literally the only person I could have access to. Mm-hmm. And they within uh, like half of a session, like 30 minutes, they diagnosed me as being bipolar and then gave me medications for it, which they said had no side effects. Mm -hmm. turns out they had 
very bad side effects, mm-hmm. and then prescribed me medication to deal with the side effects, claiming that the side effects were not being caused by the medication, but yeah. some other mental health issue that I had. Mm-hmm. And then those two medications combined meant that I couldn't sleep. So then I got prescribed pills to sleep. And then when I finally came off of the medication, mm-hmm. I was bedridden for three months because yep. of all the side effects. Yeah, it's a burnout and everything. And it, yeah, it just seems like such a broken system when that's like, that. I should never have had that experience with that person, but yeah. that was that's an experience that probably a ton of people are having. Yeah, imagine how many, that's one doctor, and imagine how many people he accessed. Exactly. And the education around um, a lot of things to do with healthcare is not well known. Going back to vaccines... Uh, after the first dose of vaccines went out, I used to work for a brewery and I did sort of a celebrity shift for them. They needed someone to work and they were handing out or they were giving away free beers or free drinks with your first vaccine to sort of just encourage people. And, um, I, at the time worked on the COVID ward and every person that came in and, and had their little sticker, it's like I got vaccinated. I'd ask them questions about the vaccine. Uh, which one did you get? What? How long do you have to wait until it's effective? What percentage are you effective? How does it work? What are the side effects? Uh, when can you get your second one? What's your percentage with the second one? They knew none of this information. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the government failed Canadians in not making that knowledge public mm-hmm. like or very easy to access because for me, I sort of thought that everyone understood what I understood, but my career allows me to understand everything that I read. And I had like in real time access to all of this information. So new things came out. So I knew all about Moderna. I knew all about Pfizer. I knew all about, uh, what was the one started with A? The Johnson and Johnson, the one that oh. no one wanted. Yeah. I'm... It's forgotten now. It's no one forgotten cares about exactly, it. Yeah. But I had access to all this information and I also saw how the vaccines were affecting people in the hospital um, oh. because I watched the shift between, you know, regular good old COVID and how it started and Delta and the shift in that. And I used to ask people, um, what, when do you think the pandemic was the worst? And they'll always say, oh, April 2020 or like May 2020, because that's when we cared the most. That's when everyone was inside and we were clapping for everybody and we were lining up. We were respecting the six feet. It was April of 2021. Yeah. That's when COVID, like the Delta variant, hit the hospitals. And I have always wondered if Omicron would have been as drastic as Delta if people had not been vaccinated. Right. So, but I really felt when it came to education, when it came to the education for you being told you're bipolar, why wouldn't you trust this doctor being given these medications, not being, not, you didn't have like an informed consent when being given these, all these medications, you weren't explained what they would do, how they would work. Plus this doctor I mean, seems I was. like he was a cook. But. Yeah. He, he was explaining what yeah. they would do and the side effects, but he's going very minor side effects. Yeah. Maybe you'd get a little headache, you know, yeah. every once in a while. Yeah. But like, like education when yeah. it comes to social justice is huge because Absolutely. when it comes to medication, a lot of people don't know that with a lot of heart medications, you can't have ginger, you can't have garlic, you can't have grapefruit. Mm-hmm. It's all these different things. Um, if you're taking any antidepressants or certain antidepressants, you shouldn't do psychotropics. You shouldn't do mushrooms, but they don't tell you that. And young kids, you know, they might be on something and then have a night out and eat a mushroom chocolate and there can be negative effects to that. So we're not really educating our people on the medications they're taking and the vaccines they're getting. 
Yeah, the education piece is really big. Um, my parents are both sort of academics, um, mm -hmm. so they do a lot of research. And the only reason that I wasn't surprised when you said April 2021 is because my parents had told me yeah. that. Or, um, And I think also Justin McElroy was creating these – people might not get this reference in the podcast – but creating mm -hmm. these charts um, where – you could kind of break down how many people were being sent to the hospital and then yeah. you could see how many people were vaccinated at any given time. And sure, it did look like it wasn't as bad in April 2021, but you could tell based on everyone being vaccinated and the spike still going up that it was yeah, people having People were just starting to get vaccinated, uh, double vaccinated, I mm -hmm. should say. Um, yeah, it was, it felt like it was overnight. Mm -hmm. One day, we I had never sent someone down to the ICU under the age of maybe 55, and they had they were immunocompromised, they had other comorbidities. Um, and then one day in April, we had a 17-year-old, sent wow. her down to the ICU. We had a couple of um, men in their 30s get sent down. We had a lot of pregnant women. Um, and we even, I even had a moment, I don't know how true this was. Um, one of the respiratory therapists had come up and there's this machine you put people on. Uh, it's a high flow machine. Um, and basically it just increases the amount of oxygen going into your body. And she looked at me and she said, this is our last one. Wow. And it kind of like, we didn't say anything, mm -hmm. but I was kind of like, okay, what happens after this? What's the next move? What's right. the decision? Because that happened early in the pandemic, right? With some of the areas yeah. in the U.S. where they're like, let's just let it rip. And then yeah. their hospitals got overwhelmed. Yeah. We didn't hear about that happening here. No, and they weren't quite overwhelmed. I can only speak on the one health authority. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone was overwhelmed. But we never had to go down to the measures of pulling someone off, someone in their 80s off because someone in their 30s needed the machine, oh, gotcha. to my knowledge. Right. And that probably wouldn't be made public if it did happen. Uh, but I was working on that ward, so I never really felt like that happened. Hmm. Uh, but the ICU was pretty full, and that all happened in April 2021, and the public didn't know. No, the and that would have been, been And that could have been government. a huge campaign for vaccines. Mm. To be like, hey. and wasn't that when every like, I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but I remember there was this time where everybody was staying home, isolating, being careful, mm -hmm. and then there was this idea: oh, the pandemic's over. Let's all we can mm -hmm. go out again. We can mm -hmm. go to the pubs opened or whatever. Yeah, and um, it was clear from if you looked past the celebration yeah. that there was still lots of COVID going around. Was that yeah. that same time? I don't know. I feel yeah. like we opened and shut down Vancouver a lot. <clears throat> I know that we had all the plexiglass up that summer, but we sort of, after a couple months, kind of let everyone back in the summer of 2020. And I know that November is when Bonnie Henry shut everything down again mm -hmm. because she did it very abruptly. Um, well, they opened was, everything back up for the election, I think. Yeah. And then they were kind of promoting, we've handled this really well. And then, yeah. As soon as they got reelected, everything started shutting down again because the cases were starting to go yeah. back up. Yeah, and they did it really quick because I, again, happened to be working at that same brewery. Even though It's probably one of the two shifts that I worked, and I happened to be there. She called it, and there was a wedding that night in one of the banquet rooms, and we had to tell them after, like, at midnight, you guys have to go home because it was an at-midnight oh, rule. Wow. And so these people who had, like, the restaurant gave back. I think gave back some money or had like probably did something to compensate these people, but mm -hmm. it was that quick. That was the second time we shut down November. And then the third time would have been March. So right before when Delta hit, 
March 30th, I think. Um, she shut it down really quick too. Right. Yeah. And but- then you saw the, the, the sore. Yeah. So I don't, I can't really remember cause I really do feel like we opened and shut everything down so often, but mm-hmm. yeah. Ben, you work in the Health Sciences Association of BC. Can you explain a little bit about what that organization does and what your role is within that organization? Yeah, it's a it's a healthcare union for um, a number of primarily hospital workers. I don't work in a hospital. Um, at my local, I'm a lead steward, so I'm doing sort of supporting the healthcare workers. Um, I've I've also done some of the work of um, liaising with the provincial government to advocate for some of the needs of our workers in our union, which are pretty universal too. So, I mean, when I brought up respiratory therapists, they're in the Health Sciences Association. Um, they're facing critical shortages in the hospitals and working, you know, some some hospitals, they're just, everybody's doing overtime all the time. Our, our unions also has a really strong social justice angle too. So we do a lot of um, support for social justice organizations. We lobby the provincial government on all kinds of issues for um, access, inclusion, and social justice. So it really feels good to be a part of a union like that. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of um, political mm-hmm. advocacy involved in your work. And is that maybe what led you to run as a candidate in, in the... Uh election because you are running um i don't know if we've mentioned this already but Mm -hmm. you're running as a a candidate for coquitlam city council at the moment and i'm kind i'm curious to know i you know my original question which is is that sort of what led you to get involved but also what cities can do to address the issue of healthcare? yeah it's a good question i think it's like stepping up to a leadership role like as lead steward was sort of a uh, a step on the way. Cause I, I think I hit a point in my life where I said, I need to find a way to be getting a leadership role. Um, cause sometimes I think when you're, when you're being led by people and you, and you're questioning their decisions, you can either sort of be opposed to them and not working with them. And, you know, this could go back to mental health. You could just develop a mental health problem or you could take action and say, it's time for me to step up and lead the show myself. Um, and getting involved in union leadership is a good stepping stone. There are a lot of positions along the way in my career. I'm, I'm maxed out until I can, unless I wanted to become a a manager. Um, and I'm not really into that sort of checking people's timesheets and stuff like that. So I think it was a way for me to step up into, you know, you asked about cities, what can cities do for healthcare? Um, I think. I think cities got out of healthcare in BC. I was looking into the history of it probably 50 years ago. So the cities are, may still be involved in like public health a little bit, like have a health department and stuff like that and social determinants of health. So providing healthy spaces for people to do recreation, making sure that um, their living space is good for their mental and physical health, um, access for people with disabilities so that the city is accessible. Um, in terms of providing space for healthcare, all cities need to like healthcare is often done as a small business. So if you look at a, a doctor's office, that's actually a small business. Um, and 
I feel like at least the city I live in, Coquitlam, we've moved more towards large corporate business space is what we're building. And we're like, well, we don't have any doctors. Maybe they're having a hard time finding affordable office space. Maybe that would be, that's one way the city could help. So, and could the city provide purpose-built clinic space for health services? Yeah, absolutely. And can cities help to uh, create space for hospitals as well? Because Coquitlam seems like quite a large city to not have a hospital. I, yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> um, I don't know too much ab about that. I think cities do have land, but I think they would often want the health authority to be purchasing the land. But I mean, if it concerns the citizens, maybe that's part of the deal. I don't know. Coquitlam has provincial lands, but they're subject to a land claim the, at the Riverview site, which was a healthcare facility. It was a teaching hospital um, 60, 70 years ago. Big mental health facility, also a teaching hospital. And um, there's, there are lots of people that want to make that back into a healthcare space. I think even the Coquitlam First Nation want to make that into a healthcare space. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's such a great location i mean for for mental well-being to be in that environment it's a it's a nice place to be yeah um and joe mm -hmm. you are a nurse and you've been working throughout the pandemic so you've kind of answered this a little bit but what have you noticed in terms of uh how your profession has been affected over the last few years um, so what's interesting is that I actually graduated nursing school into the pandemic. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't realize so it was that recent. I'm considered a pandemic baby. Huh. Um, so I actually don't have a basis of what being a nurse was like previous. Um, and I actually went right into a COVID ward. Wow. Yeah. So I did my first year on the COVID ward. Um, and like I said before, it sort of gave me this insight into what was going on that I thought was just everyone knew. Everyone knew what I knew, and I had this very unique insight into everything. Um, but I have been told by other nurses of this golden era before the pandemic where things were a little bit better. Um, I did mention that we are seeing a change, even from me being brought in right away. So this would have been July of 2020 mm -hmm. versus the years now that have come where new grads are coming in. The difference in the education that they have access to because of the pandemic is impacting maybe their, if they're prepared for the role of being a nurse. Um, a lot of the times students didn't have access to the hospitals, which is where you do all your clinical work. They didn't have access to, depending on how you learn, they didn't have access to in-class. Um, I did my last semester online on Zoom. It's awful. I did not learn as much as I should have. I do study well by myself, but I felt like I was wasting eight hours a day zoning out because I was just staring at a screen. And it was, I missed that interaction. Were there, uh, like, were you having to miss out on some of the hands-on experience that uh, you, you're meant to be getting? No. So the structure of my school was um, the last semester is your research okay. semester. And I did, they did sort of, they did a good job structuring uh, how that semester would go because you were supposed to have a community rotate or a yeah, community rotation, but it was, that's a different experience. So I could have worked for inside. I could have been a street nurse. I could have worked for the downtown Eastside neighborhood house. And so you're learning how to work with 
people in the community and that's your last semester. So we missed out on that, but I did have access to um, the downtown East side uh, neighborhood house, I think it was called. And I was in correspondence with them. I was still attached to them. And I actually learned a lot about the resources that Vancouver had. So I didn't miss out on that aspect, but other students that came after me, some, some of them missed out on in class, they missed out on some clinical stuff. And we're seeing that reflected in how prepared they are when they come to us. Right. Yeah. So we're sort of in desperate need of nurses. And yet at the same time, the nurses that we are getting are not necessarily trained as well as yeah. they would hopefully be. Yeah. It's just there's such a difference between learning on a fake dummy that has plastic skin versus seeing it firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have noticed that. And that would be, it's a bit of an arrogant thing for me to say because I'm acting like I've had all this experience. Um, but that's what I've noticed. Is that, Have you heard that from other people yes. in the hospital as well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it's, it's not the fault of the student. They paid the same amount of money that I did to mm-hmm. get the education that they did. And they got the one that they got. And then it's sort of being left on the nurses that they work with now to sort of guide them into that, uh, which then just leads to burnout. Right. With us. And we're already burnt out from the pandemic. Right. Yeah. Burnt out from the pandemic in terms of like mentally burnt out or getting sick because of COVID? Uh, mentally burnt out, I would definitely say. Um, and that more goes to just the way that they're funding the hospitals um, and the way that they're organizing the shifts. It's very hard to have adequate nurses. It's hard to have enough RTs. It's hard to have all these different things Mm -hmm. and there needs to be a shifting of where money is going in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, So nursing is burning out. I mean, nursing has, the profession has always been burning out. It's something you're taught in nursing school about nursing burnout, um, which is an interesting thing to teach in nursing (laughs) school. It's like, Hey, this thing's going to happen to you. You're going to get burnt out at your job. What what Uh, did they blame that on? Um, So 20 years ago, you could have four patients and they would have, they would be in with one thing. So modern medicine is this amazing thing. We're keeping people alive longer, but now we're managing all of their symptoms. So before with, you know, the, the older boomers, they're just starting to age into old age and they have all of these health issues that they're managing. So now you have pe- now you have a patient who is in acute kidney failure, they have a couple of heart issues, they're a diabetic, they take a bunch of different mood stabilizers maybe. Um, because they're a diabetic, they have all these wounds because they're not taking their insulin properly or something like that. Maybe they drink, so they have a liver issue, they have all these different things. That's one patient mm-hmm. 20 years ago could have four patients and your patient was in with <clears throat> diabetes right. or in with this and that was it is that because we suddenly have um more health issues that that just people in general are dealing with or is that because in the past someone who was dealing with that many different issues would have just died it's a little bit of both so definitely um people dealing with that many issues would have just died Maybe not 20 years ago, but dialysis is very common now where maybe 
years ago, you wouldn't go on dialysis. And so you would either need a kidney transplant or you would eventually die of kidney failure and it would affect you. Uh, and then also it's just the way that, I mean, Vancouver is interesting because we're one of the more active cities, but it's the way that we take care of our bodies. And it does always go back to mental health. I've always said that the core of the issue with healthcare is we're feeding into, we're feeding into the cycle. And if we got to the root problem, which is mental health, we made mental health part of the universal healthcare, uh, meaning access to counseling services, bringing mental health to the forefront, you would see a direct return, not only in healthcare, but actually in policing in probably 20 years, because a lot of the issues in healthcare are stemmed from self-soothing. So we soothe with food. We... Um, don't exercise. And if we encourage exercise, you would see, you know, different things in the body. Um, a lot of diabetes type two is brought on by food, um, substance use. So people use uh, drugs and alcohol, self-soothe, smoking, things like that. So if you, if that was brought to the forefront, I wouldn't have a patient. I wouldn't have as many patients in 30 years in with um, alcohol induced liver failure because they wouldn't be drinking to the point like to soothe themselves to the point that they are at that place right so it comes back to saying i guess that uh, i think i've used quite a bit on this podcast an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure yeah, yeah. make sure that people get that treatment yeah. earlier and then you don't have to worry about treating hopefully quite as many yeah. issues in the future yeah, yeah. And create humane conditions in society yeah. too, like where people don't have to work 60 hours a week two yeah. jobs come home to this, a home that's very tiny and yeah. um, don't have any money left over, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that makes, I think there's like a country, I don't know where it was. I read it and now I can't remember where they're trialing the four day work week. Have either oh, of you heard of this? Finland, Finland or Denmark. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. apparently it's the productivity is the same. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. And they weren't because, uh, a lot of places that have tried tests like this or, or uh, a lot of, I guess, theorizing around tests yeah. like this. Is centered around taking a forty-hour work week and mm-hmm. squishing it into four days, mm-hmm. so four ten-hour days. But yeah, I can't remember if it's Finland or Denmark either. But um, from what I recall, they were not doing that. They were basically saying, "We're just going to take out a day. We're not going to add more hours to your other days. Yeah, we're just going to see if maybe you're more productive when you're not trying to just fill the time." Yeah, and I think that with in that circumstance, the there's an incentive to be more productive so you can keep your three-day day off, like weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I was given the option, like, hey, if you finish all your work in four days, you can get your fifth day off, I would get my work done in four days. Well, I mean, that's what being an entrepreneur is all about. Yeah. Right? Like when I run my construction company, I get paid usually for the job. Yeah. You know, this is the quote for how much this job's going to cost. So I'm incentivized to try to get it done Quickly, because yeah. the faster I do it, the more money I make. And the same could be true of, of any other job, but that's not how we really structure it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely not nursing. They will Definitely. never be. <laughs> they won't be like, oh, if you can get more done in less time, <laughs> it won't happen. No. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to do, I guess, in nursing already that. Yeah. You you can't reduce our, our work week. Right. Yeah. You need to add more nurses. And that. You need to pay us more and right. add that's more true. supports for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go back to some questions for both of you just to kind of start wrapping things up. Uh, the first one is, if you could change one thing about healthcare in Canada, what would that be? 
<laughs> I mean, mine's to bring mental health to the to the top. And right. I've already explained why, but I think that is that is the issue. Mm-hmm. That is the issue, I think, globally to a lot of the physical ailments that we see. And if it became something that we acknowledged and worked on, that we would see that difference in like it would take us a few decades, but you would see that in the generations that come up. Right. Cause so much stems from that, those mental health issues. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's kind of like in housing where if you just put a roof over someone's head, you're not just solving the issue of homelessness, you're solving issues of crime and drug use and, mm-hmm. and all sorts of aspects uh, of what people resort to when they don't have a roof over their head. So yeah. it's, uh, it helps to address a much broader set of issues. Mm-hmm. What would you say, Ben? It's a tough question. There's so many things that I would change. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I've always wanted to do was like remove barriers for healthcare workers to, um, for people to become healthcare workers and to ha- like do work on healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's we're always having professional barriers. We have to get great marks, spend a lot of money on training programs. And then we're finally allowed to make important decisions about people's mm-hmm. health and well-being. Um, but maybe we don't need that much qualification. Maybe we can – and there's this can happen in small ways. Like they're trying to make it so pharmacists can do more. Pharmacists mm-hmm. can prescribe – I guess prescribe drugs is how it, or dispense yeah. drugs without a physician's mm-hmm. prescription. And um, I think taking away those barriers would let us to do – let us – do more healthcare mm-hmm. with people who are oftentimes really constricted in their role. I guess there's an opportunity to, um, instead of having uh, a nurse, for instance, who has to know uh, quite a lot of information about a very broad range of mm-hmm. things, you could have maybe more focused professions within healthcare so that the training is not quite as intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might work, but the the broadness in which a nurse understands their patient actually works to the advantage of the patient. If they're being consulted with cardiology and gastro and psych, those doctors really only specialize in those things. And it's the nurse that catches the things and brings it to the doctor's attention. Yes. And I didn't mean that as like a replacement for nurses, but more so like how can we, uh, to your point about Mm -hmm. uh, trying to make healthcare more accessible, how can we um, find a way to fill the need for uh, more healthcare workers yeah. in a way that also makes it, uh, I guess, easier for people to become healthcare workers. Yeah. I think that um, there's a lot of um, immigrants coming to Canada who are healthcare workers in their country, and we do not make it easy for them to become, to match that. Oh, that, we're not recognizing their employment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, there's a lot of LPNs, speaking from a nursing perspective, there's a lot of LPNs that work with me and they should be given the option to challenge our licensing exam, which is called the NCLEX. And if they can pass it, they can become an RN, which helps the other RNs because there's a scope issue with LPNs and RNs. Mm -hmm. So they don't receive the degree because that's why you go to four years Mm -hmm. when you would go on and get your master's from that. Mm -hmm. But you're able to practice as an RN instead of making our LPNs go back to school for 18 months and relearn all of these things that they're learning firsthand at the hospital. It's a real right. barrier because 
to get the higher qualification, mm-hmm. you have to come from a place of privilege originally, yeah. usually. Mm-hmm. But there are people who come from less privileged backgrounds. They start at a lower step, like mm-hmm. LPN. Yeah. Um, but they're very competent, and you can, yeah. if there's yeah. a way for them to yeah. step up without having to put out the money for school, because yeah. you're almost caught in that yeah. that strata of mm-hmm. socioeconomic strata. Yeah, and I think it's two years to upgrade from LPN to RN. And I often work with LPNs and I have to write it on our board who is an LPN because we're all so qualified that and they understand the disease process and they have clinical reasoning that I will forget who the LPN is until they ask me to do something that they can't, which is a very simple task. There are certain tasks they just it's not in their scope to do. Oh, so they could do it, but they're not, yeah. not allowed to. Yeah. It's basically like, for example, hanging blood. I could very, I mean, they, they know the symptoms of a patient who is reacting to a bad transfusion, but on both ends, they're asking me to do it because it's not in their scope, even though they know how to do it, they could just do it, but they're not getting paid when I'm getting paid. So I would do the same thing if I was making less money. I'd be like, you do it. (laughs) You monitor this patient. I'm not going to do it. They're paying me way less. The hospitals make, they have a great deal on the LPNs. Interesting. Yeah. And what does LPN stand for? Licensed practical nurse. Okay. Thank you. Um, So my last question for both of you is what advice would you give to someone who wants to advocate for better health care? This is how we kind of try to end all of our I would say uh, do your research. Because what I've noticed uh, in how it works now with media, you know, on TikTok and YouTube, if people can poke holes in what you're saying, they will. Mm -hmm. And if you've done your research and you want to advocate for something, be prepared with the pushback because people will push back. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of people in person and on my little phone and they're advocating a message that I am also passionate about but they sort of say the wrong thing and then people will run with that and they can't back themselves up because they start tripping over their message. Right. Yeah. I guess you can do a lot of damage in advocacy if you're not aware of what you're talking about. Yeah. There's a lot of amazing people who try to advocate and they say the wrong thing and we're all human, but then it just completely discredits them Mm -hmm. and then it like builds Right. And people don't trust that movement anymore. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Ben? Those are really good thoughts. I mean, <laughs> anytime we're talking about anything that's somewhat scientific mm-hmm. where there's apparently a right answer, yeah. there's so many ways you can just make that error. And then somebody who's clever at yeah. making a counter argument yeah. sounds right. Mm-hmm. You know, we've ex- it happens in climate change, it happens in housing policy discussions, it happens, yeah. in, happens in healthcare. Um, I, the, I was thinking of something different um, for advocacy is um, there's an advocacy group that I think has done great work in the, in the province of British Columbia called BC health coalition. And they fought to uh, preserve our public health care. That's what they're, they're fighting to do. Make sure that Mm -hmm. we still have um, a good, strong public health care system. So I would look them up. I think they're looking for support all the time. They can use volunteers or something along those lines? I think so. I'm, I haven't been heavily involved with them, but I know that they're looking for support. And um, I imagine, yeah, I think that there's they're an advocacy group. So joining an advocacy group is a good start, and I think they're a good mm-hmm. one. 
And what was the name of the organization it's again? BC Health Coalition. BC Health Coalition. Mm-hmm. I hope we get that right. Fantastic. I think that's correct, yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you so much to both of you for joining me today. Uh, it's been a really interesting conversation. It's always an interesting conversation on this podcast, but this is one of the topics that I feel like I know the least about. And I uh, really appreciate both of you educating me. I'm Nicholas Sperling. This has been a social justice podcast, and I'll see you again in two weeks. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.